Welcome to the third episode of Cinema Smorgasbord presents the films of John Singleton, where we run the entire filmography of a particular director. I'm Doug Tilly, and with me as always is my brother from another mother, Liam O'Donnell. How you doing today, Liam? Don't call me bro, bro. <laughs> I'll call you whatever I want, Liam. I guess the actual line should have been, don't call me bro, dude. And then don't call, said, don't me call me dude, bro. Dude. Bro. See? Yeah. All right. Well, we're not going to go over it again. Liam, we're here to talk about <laughs> two more films in the career of the late John Singleton. Uh, we're getting to a yeah. pretty interesting point. You know, at, I'll have to be honest. I may have even mentioned this before, Liam. Your idea of doing this filmography in an order where you're watching like the first movie and the last movie, second movie, second last movie. At first, I was not for that at all. To me, it, it, it didn't really make a lot of sense. I'd rather do it chronologically. But now that we're this far into it, it does make a lot more sense to me because you're seeing kind of this jump ahead. You're basically uh, flashbacking when you're watching these older films and then you're seeing where he went in terms of his career. And it has gotten really kind of strange. And and uh, I haven't really experienced a situation like this where you see a director who's making a lot of very personal films then go to, to steal a phrase. He goes Hollywood and his movies just aren't that personal. And it becomes very stark when you watch them kind of back to back like this. Well, and I think for me, it was important. This is an innovation that comes specifically because of his filmography, right? I didn't want us to spend the last three to four episodes complaining. Yeah. You know, that just felt excessive and it felt like we would end being like, well, he was good. at." I didn't want the ending to be um, purely... Uh, he fucked up because I don't know if that's fair to the quality of the work to then say, well, before he passed away, he hadn't done a good movie in a while, like just to end on such a sour note. I felt like, well, at least this way we're combining the two things. And honestly, I have to give you some credit because this was your original idea for our Eric Roberts podcast, right? That you would take a movie that might be more ridiculous and then take a movie that might be more accepted <laughs> as traditionally good and smush them together. And that way you're covering both ends of the spectrum. And eventually we couldn't do that anymore. <laughs> we certainly could not. <laughs> uh, but, but I, but I liked that idea of mixing the two things together Um for specifically for John Singleton. Now, I don't know if it would work for other directors or not, but I think in this case, it gave us a really interesting way to talk about his career. So today we're going to be talking about John Singleton's third film, Higher Learning, from 1995, which he both directed and wrote. And then we're going to be talking about Too Fast, Too Furious, a very different kind of movie from the year 2003. I'm very interested to jump into that. But Liam, before we do that, uh, in this uh, opening bit, I uh, I wanted to talk about an interview that we both watched with John Singleton from around the time that Higher Learning was released with Charlie Rose, the disgraced interviewer, uh, who I guess yeah. his show was on PBS. Um, despite him being disgraced, and I hate even saying that, he he he, he interviewed everybody basically, uh, and and. Even though he was exactly the kind of interviewer I don't like, which is he didn't seem to know that much about the people that he was interviewing a lot of the times. He d- he was a very engaged interviewer. And I'm mean, honestly, just as a talking head to ask questions, it was interesting to see John Singleton at this point in his career. He had made Boys in the Hood. He had made Poetic Justice. At this point, he was uh, a entrenched uh, Hollywood director, but he was still making movies about very obviously personal things. And Higher Learning kind of continued that. Um 
one of the things he talked about in this interview, and we'll link it in the show notes, were the films at the time that Boys in the Hood came out, that or immediately afterwards, that were emulating that movie, were trying to copy that formula to some extent. Liam, do you have any experience with those kind of movies? Yeah, I mean, I guess he's referring generally to movies like uh, Menace to Society, right? or um, he he might be thinking of like Juice, maybe? Probably. Um, uh, I, you know, it's weird, because on one hand, obviously there was a trend, or else you wouldn't get, don't be a menace to society while drinking <laughs> your juice in the hood. Right. Like, obviously, there was something there to lampoon. On the other hand, uh, the suggestion is then that these are bad movies. I will say I don't think Menace to Society holds up to Boys in the Hood if you want to do a direct comparison. Sure. But Juice is fucking great. And a lot of other movies that kind of fall into this category that, that I don't know if they were all aping Boys in the Hood, but they all got the money to get made because of Boys in the Hood. Some of those movies are very good. And the ones that aren't, good i think we knew it that it's not like a retrospect thing where we look back and go oh my god what were we thinking you know what i mean like like the excesses of new wave i know that's a random pull but (laughs) there there are things in the 80s where people who were in it at the time look back and they're like god what the fuck i think with these movies the worst ones were didn't do well at the time it wasn't like we were all on board for every single movie that happened to have uh, young black men shooting each other. Right. I think a lot of those, the worst examples of those movies never got off the ground anyway. They barely got seen. And the ones that did stick around in the consciousness are pretty good movies. And so um, I, I get the feeling and, and I really appreciate it for the idea of why he started to do different kinds of films because he didn't want to be trapped. And nobody does. Nobody, especially as a director, you don't want to be known for doing this one thing. You know, and so it's interesting to think about going into higher learning. How does this allow him to play off the things he cares about, but expand the scope of what he's doing? It's something we've already talked about that he was obviously very conscious about not being pigeonholed into making gangster style movies. And that poetic justice seemed to be a direct response to that because, you know, even though there is a, there is there are moments of violence in that movie, in some ways, it's a very gentle movie. Uh, compared certainly to Boys in the Hood. And I think Higher Learning continues that to a certain extent as well, even though, again, it, it does have some some pretty uh, violent and unpleasant aspects to it. It's a movie that is obviously extremely personal. I mean, even at the time that Higher Learning came out in 1995, this is still a guy in his 20s, right? This is an experience right. that's obviously uh, tied into the, the, the his own not only worldview, but things that he experienced probably growing up and going to school Himself, so I mean, I think Higher Learning still feels like a very personal project. One thing that's particularly interesting about Higher Learning, and we'll talk about it once we get into the movie, is that it's is that it is not just a quote unquote black movie. It's a movie that is supposed to be covering a range of experiences and kind of a microcosm of the entire world within a college kind of campus. And I think that's really interesting. And I think that that's something that a lot of movies have kind of taken as well. One of the other things he, I don't think he rankles against, because obviously this is someone that has influenced him, is Charlie Rose, of course, asks him about Spike Lee and uh, whether Spike Lee had an influence on him. And he talks about, in response to it, this reputation that he has, John Singleton had in 1995, of being sort of a cocky guy. And the fact that he had to be, you know, the, it's the it, it's a pretty common thing to say, but that doesn't make it untrue, that he had to work like 10 times harder than anyone else to get to where he is, which is why he's cocky. Do you feel that cockiness in his films? 
That's actually a good question in the sense that I've never thought about it. I've always heard that about him. I think in interviews at this time, he came across that way. Yeah. But I don't know if I get that feeling or not. I mean, weirdly, maybe the movies about which he had the least amount of pride, like a Too Fast, Too Furious, there's still a bit of like a, he likes the cocky dudes. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like he likes the dude who's a little into himself. But I don't get that feeling in the movies per se. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just not attuned to be looking for that voice, you know? Um, but certainly in higher learning, uh, unless he's specifically supposed to be the Ice Cube character, I don't get that kind of cockiness at all. You know, one of the things he says about Spike Lee and and kind of putting it on himself is the hope that the success of both of their films, um, not just specific films, but like their careers, are, are going to it's going to because there's more black representation on the screen that it's going to lead to more films being made with that representation. And I think that you referred to that, Liam. It's it's an unfortunate thing that the way that Hollywood views these things isn't, you know, it looks like there's an, a whole giant audience that's that wants to see these films in this representation. Instead, they interpret it as, oh, people want to see gangster movies. So that's what we'll make. We'll just put out black gangster movies. And some of those are very, very good. But it, I did feel, you know, if, if for those who lived through the 90s, it did seem like it took quite a while for that representation where you see black led and black directed and black starring movies for the rest of that decade. You know, I may have said this before on this podcast, Liam, where I grew up in Newfoundland, Spike Lee movies didn't play in the theater. Uh, right. You did. Yeah. yeah, yeah movies yeah. with, with a black ensemble almost always did not play. And thinking back, that's super fucked up, right? These are still Hollywood movies that had wide uh, distribution and they just weren't playing because the thought was these fucking newfie crackers are not going to have any interest in viewing it and it's and of course the whole point is that you expose people to these different experiences and 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 of course like are you telling me that people aren't going to want to see higher learning because there's there's black faces on the screen that was the message that was being sent to where i grew up in the 90s that's interesting it's so different than my experience but i'm sure there was some of those kinds of choices being made at theaters that i just didn't notice because where i lived Theaters were all pretty close to each other, so if I had to go to a different theater to see a movie, I sure. probably didn't even notice. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, it, it's interesting to kind of think back on because, as I've mentioned on the show, a lot of these movies that we're talking about, I have not seen, and that includes 1995's Higher Learning. I think it's a movie. Uh, tell me if I'm wrong about this. Is Higher Learning a film that is personal to you, Liam? No, not at all. I mean, it's it's something that I saw uh, when I was younger. I guess it had a little bit of an impact in the sense of there's parts of it I remember pretty well. Sure. And there's parts of the soundtrack that I remember pretty well. But overall, eh, not particularly. I think my response to it at the time, because uh, it came out in 95, and uh, by 96, I was pretty familiar with like uh, punk and skinhead stuff. Right. And so that aspect of the movie is feels a little hackneyed you know what i mean um it 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 doesn't have a ton of nuance and i think at the time it caused a certain amount of like uh rhetoric around that stuff again that felt not particularly well thought out uh however um in retrospect i don't think uh, a lot of the pushback on this movie over time has just been the excesses of it, and we'll talk about that in the very sort of 90s uh, identity politics of it. I don't think any of that occurred to me. I just thought it was like, it was cool. You know, I liked it. I, I remember thinking, uh, 
Michael Rappaport was particularly ridiculous in it, and we'll talk about that too. But uh, <laughs> any more ridiculous than he is in real life, Liam? Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> uh, but uh, but it didn't quite uh, it didn't quite leave the impression on me. Boys in the Hood and Poetic Justice were like kind of like movies that I you know cared about, and this was like, oh yeah, he did that college movie. Um, it wasn't as uh, impactful. Liam, I just want to end in terms of talking about this interview uh, with the fact that one of the things that John Singleton mentions about himself is that he's not a cheese eater, uh, and in, that is supposed to mean, of course, that he isn't. He isn't like snooty. He isn't that he's he's obviously making films about people from a certain uh, economic demographic, and that he sees himself as as kind of of a, of a, um, a person centered on the common man. Let's say that he's not a cheese eater. But what he also says, Liam, is that he doesn't eat cheese. He hates cheese, and people know about that. What do you think about that? John Singleton doesn't eat cheese. It's weird. It's weird. Well, what if I was to tell you this, Liam? I have a kind of uh, a difficulty with cheese as well, and it's not because I'm lactose intolerant, which I'm not. It's that I had some bad experiences when I was a kid eating cheese, and now I have trouble eating cheese a lot of the times. I don't like it's cheese. Also weird. That's weird, right? That's weird. Yeah, you don't have yeah, any strong feelings about cheese. It's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about that Philadelphia cream cheese? I mean, whatever. <laughs> Liam, I, you, you know what? I, it feels like you're already uh, disengaging from the podcast. So what we'll do <laughs> is uh, we'll take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about 1995's Higher Learning. Today, there are many ways to fight a battle. Some people use their mind. Some people use their fists. What do you want to do, college boy? <laughs> One's primary purpose at university level should be to learn how to think. Without struggle, there is no progress. Columbia Pictures presents a new film from John Singleton. People from all different walks of life encounter racial tension, rape, responsibility, and the meaning of an education on a university campus. It's 1995's Higher Learning, written and directed by our man, John Singleton. Uh, starring, whew, <laughs> Doug, this this cast, Omar Epps, Christy Swanson, <laughs> Michael Rappaport, Ice Cube, Jennifer Conley, Tyra Banks, Regina King, not yet quite the queen that Regina King is. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cole Hauser, Busta Rhymes, Lawrence Fishburne. I, you know, you asked me if this movie had like a special thing to me. I it didn't, but I did think the reason I went to see it was not because I remembered it was the guy from Boys in the Hood. I saw this movie because Busta Rhymes was in it. That was like the motivation. <laughs> oh yeah, college movie Busta Rhymes. And it was only after the fact that I was like, oh, that was the Boys in the Hood director. Okay, but I, you know, at the time I wasn't really caring about directors. wasn't a thing. You know what I mean? That I like was invested in at this time, but but you know, uh, and uh, worth noting, the band Eve's Plum performed, and as you know, they went on to change the face of rock and roll. So that's worth talking about. I know you're a big plum head. <laughs> I am I'm the plumbiest, <laughs> the plumbiest of plum heads. I mean, we're, we're, you're joking a little bit, Liam, but I mean, you mentioned on the first segment that the soundtrack was one of the things that you remember most about this movie. So obviously, music is a big part of this movie. 
Yeah, well, I was referring specifically to the Raphael Sadiq sex song, partly because this is the first time I realized that Raphael Sadiq did things outside of Tony, 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 <laughs> and it, which is which was, by the way, upsetting because I didn't know his name wasn't Tony. I assumed that Tony, Tony, Tony were three Tonys, that that was a literal thing. I that have was to say, incorrect. up until this point, I thought the same thing. No, uh, Raphael Sadiq. You're a big new Jack Swing guy, so I can understand that that would be particularly devastating for you. Yeah. You know what's funny is I thought I was a new – this is a giant aside, <laughs> but really quick. On uh, uh, another podcast I very much enjoy, Linoleum Knife, they were talking about New Jack Swing, and I thought I was a New Jack Swing guy, and they started mentioning some of their favorite artists, and I had never heard of them, and I thought, oh, no, I have to do some Spotify research. I'm a poser. Who knew? <laughs> Speaking of being a poser, Doug, you've never seen Higher Learning, no. uh, despite claiming to like movies, which is fucking insane. So uh, I'm really curious. What did you think – of higher learning, knowing that I'm going to judge you for your answer. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I uh, in our notes today, I put a letterbox review of the movie that describes it as never boring, but kind of a mess of a movie. And I would agree with that. That is my kind of major takeaway from it, which isn't to say that I didn't enjoy watching it. And maybe even enjoy is kind of a difficult word to use because it does tackle a lot of difficult subject matter, the racism and rape aspects of it in particular. But it is a movie that... That having gone to college myself, even though my college experience was very, very different than the one on display here, I do think that that idea, and it's this is certainly not the first movie to do it, that this college campus is this microcosm of the world as a whole. And Ice Cube even kind of spells that out in the movie. You know, there's he doesn't spell it out very eloquently, but he talks about that, you know, people kind of keep to their own group on these campuses. And I think that that is true on a lot of campuses. But what you see is as people kind of go along and they mix and they start to get to know other people and their backgrounds that you see, you know, the crossover between that. And you see, I think a lot of positive steps, but you also see in this movie, some of the most possible negative things that can occur. Um, I do think that the movie works best when it's focusing on Omar Epps character. I think that he's kind of the heart of this movie. And that is not solely because Christy Swanson, is a difficult character in real life, and it's kind of impossible to think of her in this movie because of what she has become uh, over the last few years. And I really do wonder, having watched this movie, what she thinks of it in retrospect. What did she think was going on and the messages that were being said in this movie? So overall, I really did find it very interesting. I'm really curious to get your take on a lot of the subject matter, in particular Lawrence Fishburne's character in this movie. Uh, But I have to say that the way that it tackles some really heavy issues, it did rankle me a little bit because I feel like it, as you uh, suggested with the the skinhead aspect of it, it just feels some of it's underbaked because they're trying to fit so much into it. Yeah, I mean, my immediate takeaway on this viewing was, A, this would have been less corny uh, and a little less ham-fisted as a series. Like, this really feels like... That's interesting, yeah. They should have given John Singleton a season because... Too much happened. I mean, first of all, for this much to happen in a year is already our man is a full on white supremacist by Halloween. And it's just a little now don't get me wrong. I could believe Michael Rappaport capable of all managed all kinds of evil, like all manners of just degradation. I'm like, yeah, Rappaport. Sure. makes sense. But uh, <laughs> but it, it just doesn't really work. And they have to go with this crazy pace for for us to end how they want to end which is basically with graduation yeah and that it it's it's just cheesy it doesn't really make sense i think as a viewer for for all these things to kind of be going at this pace 
Um, I will say there's aspects of it that are like painfully familiar. The, the, the way that um, well-meaning feminist groups are instrumentalizing people's pain as a way to sort of like make an impact. That was, that was my college experience. And I spent part of my time at a Jesus college. And that was, (laughs) that was still how it was, was this feeling of this is for a good cause, but I feel like I might be being used a little bit. I think that, I think that reflects a really accurate portrayal of some college campuses. I do think that again, that's something that becomes incredibly simplified in this. And I do think the idea of making Jennifer Connelly's character, uh, at the very least bisexual and and using that as, I mean it, it, she doesn't seem to be searching for a person to get into a relationship with but to me like that that just plays into a lot of unpleasant stereotypes uh mm-hmm. in regards to how these characters you know how it all would work out and that even comes to Christy Swanson's kind of bisexual awakening through it but i guess like you said they're trying to pack in everything into this movie well but I think the issue the issue I have is that I'm not clear that Christy Swanson is having a bisexual awakening because I'm not clear that John Singleton has good sexual politics. Yes, not. I think that's a really so good point. So the issue yeah. might just be she's only with Jennifer Connelly's character because she's mad at men or some bullshit yeah, like that. exactly. That's what I'm it's, getting it's at. Yeah, yeah. Part of the issue here, too, and let's talk a little bit more about this Christy Swanson thing. Side note, I don't know anything about Christy Swanson now, so I didn't have that bias going in. I just was oh. like, hey, isn't that Buffy? And that was like my entire emotional <laughs> she, reaction She's full on MAGA head. She is and like really hardcore right wing. Well, and so I think the issue here is that parts of this movie completely unintentionally could play into MAGA ideas, actually. Yeah. So her... You know, getting us she she's assaulted and then uh she goes to her roommate and then the friends of her roommate who are all uh uh not just black but mostly black men, they make this about uh a a pretty, you know, offensive, but not as offensive as the Nazis on campus, uh uh racist comment that this dude makes and Chrissy Swanson gets forgotten in the whole thing. It's so strange because she's there and she sees it and she's obviously like traumatized right. and they I, beat the I, shit I think out the of him. Prob- yeah. The problem though here is that uh that could be subtle co- it, it, the first time I saw it I thought, "Oh, this is this is real, right? That like people aren't really sensitive to the plight of women, especially men. Um they don't take this seriously and they want to make it about race because that's easier for them it doesn't it doesn't implicate them whereas sexual assault it it makes men uncomfortable because they feel implicated uh, even though even if they didn't do it they feel like they're part of the problem that would be really insightful it's the later ham-fisted relationship with jennifer conley and the way that it, it problematizes the whole feminist group is kind of using christy swanson uh, against her will, not quite against her will, but like uh, you know, she's clearly not entirely comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. It it makes that earlier part feel like does John Singleton even know what he's portraying here, or does this make sense to him that they would be more mad about the racist comment? Because it, the movie's not clear, and and I I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt and say the subtle commentary is intentional, and he's actually trying to make a point. But what I'm saying is it's hard to hear that point when the rest of the movie is such as like kind of a dumb sledgehammer in some ways a fun sledgehammer and i think we'll get to this in a little bit but a little precursor unfortunately this movie feels less dumb than it did in the 90s because a lot of of what here i think felt to people like an exaggeration is now some uh 25 years later still entirely relevant in fact worse in some ways because of the internet and social media Mm -hmm. so like um 
it feels a little bit like oops <laughs> unfortunately this uh this uh what 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 should be kind of a silly thing we look back on like almost like after school special style and be like uh good intentions guy but you really missed the mark is like completely still relevant and that's like upsetting because it's also is entirely ham-fisted 90s identity politics that doesn't play well that plays with respectability i mean this is the thing and let's get into this right now the Lawrence fishburne character Mm -hmm. he's supposed to be this like light at the end of the tunnel for omar epps for for the uh malik williams character and he has I, i mean some of what he says is true right that like you just got to work hard and whatever, like all that's real, but it's played in this respectability politics way. That's like, this is what you should really feel. And it's, it's done in a way intentional or not that dismantles uh, critical race theory and yes. uh, systemic racism as an idea, which I think in 2020, someone who's younger might watch us and go, well, they just didn't know any better, but that's bullshit. Most of the stuff that we talk about with critical race theory started getting written about in the eighties. So by but also time- like uh, Lauren Fishburne's character in boys in the hood plays a similar role here. It feels particularly kind of on the nose regarding, right? I mean, he does seem to be uh, in that interview with Charlie Rose. John Singleton mentions that, that Omar Epps is supposed to be kind of his analog in it, right? Like he's the kind of his character, but you can tell that, Lawrence Fishburne is the character that's saying things that he believes. I mean, it's it, it seems right. like it's it's baked into the movie. I mean, I you could suggest that what he's trying to do is have Ice Cube be the counterbalance. Absolutely, a hundred percent. And Ice Cube is the one pushing the more popular idea of a system out to get us. And John Singleton is using Lawrence Fishburne's character to critique that idea. Only. Um, the Ice Cube character in this movie is not very strong. And that was the big switch for me from when I saw this as a kid. Again, as a kid, I didn't find it entirely convincing for a number of reasons. Uh, but one of the things that did change was I, I thought Ice Cube's character was pretty in touch with the world at the time. Uh, mostly because a lot of my radical politics came from uh, punk and hip hop. So it was just right. like people who were angry and not people who had done any analysis. And so now rewatching it, I'm like, well, the Ice Cube character doesn't make enough strong points and he acts too much like a dickhead for him to work as a counterbalance to the respectability politics of Lawrence Fishburne's character. So really, it seems like Lawrence Fishburne's character as the hardworking uh, black man who who has done something and he's still sensitive to the plight of others, but he, he really thinks people should get their stuff together. He seems like the only rational sort of voice in the yes. film other than uh malik and we identify with malik malik is our is our avatar yeah. so like uh, uh, unfortunately by the way way more than christy swanson because i think the intention is that you're supposed to identify with a few characters and what they're going through absolutely and, uh, so when they come together at the very end of the movie you're supposed yeah. to think oh this is the end of both of their journeys but it kind yeah. of feels like this is the end of omar epps journey and what happened with christy swanson she got raped and it was awful and then she got interested in um, in I guess politics to a certain extent, but certainly feminism, and then she runs a peace festival that goes horribly wrong. But she just seems like a background character in her own movie. It's really awkward, and then the way it, with them ending and finally meeting at the end, the way that scene is played is almost like they're gonna fuck now. Yes, and it's absolutely. Like, so tone deaf. It's honestly, you know, we could beat up this movie a lot. I think it actually is 
parts of it are better than I thought it was going to be. So I don't want to come off like this movie sucks. There's there's actually a lot about it that's pretty good, but that ending is more tone deaf than all of the skinhead stuff, which is also tone deaf. You know what I'm saying? Like it's just it just was so weird to be like, this is where we're gonna end it with this moment because it just came across like. Uh, it was strange. It was a very strange moment for me personally. So let's talk um, about I, this the skinhead stuff since it's it, it obviously I, is something that touched a nerve with you. Well, I uh, a I, <laughs> if they weren't if they weren't specifically these like caricatures of skinheads, I actually think that part of the movie at the time I was just pissed because um, they're just angry white dudes and. Uh, there's nothing about it that is specifically related to being a skinhead. Now, granted, it is set in California, and the history of white power groups in California is particularly insidious, and those groups tended to have the imagery of being skinheads without actually being connected to you know that skinhead culture at all. And I don't know that he needed to include anti-racist skinheads or even traditional skinheads or whatever. That's not really the point. But the point is, is like by using that cheap imagery. It, it just sort of gets people riled up about uh, a group of people without really adding any nuance to it whatsoever, you know? Um, but there, the part of it that was upsetting rewatching it now is at the time I thought also, why would he fall in with this group of extremists so quickly that before the end of the school year, he's ready to shoot people. It just, well, fell. it's because they blasted their music really loud. Right. Liam. Exactly. <laughs> right. But you know what I mean? Like it, it's so corny and cornball to a certain extent, only Doug, Watching it now, I I, I literally yeah. immediately thought if these people were Boogaloo Boys or Proud Boys or sure. whatever, Absolutely. apparently this would be completely accurate. In fact, like it's weird how <clears throat> in the context of 1995, this movie is still a little corny and a little ham-fisted. It, sure. It, and it, uninten- it unintentionally, I think, caricatures not just the white supremacists who just are like not – you know, what's insidious about white supremacists is that they know, a lot of them know how to conform. It's only, uh, you know, you can watch the specials and see the worst case scenarios of these people who don't know how to fucking live their lives. Sure. But but if you think that's how it is, then you're not paying attention to the millions who've infiltrated the FBI, the police department. You know, like our own government, even under Trump, has pointed out, hey, actual white supremacists are not just toothless freaks living on a farm somewhere. They are living normal lives, infiltrating places of power, and we know that to be the case, and we don't know what to do about it. I mean, the movie does refer to that, though, right? Because Cole Hauser's character is angry. But he says it for one second, and it seems like a throwaway point. That's true. Whatever. On the other hand, that level of stupid extremism is apparently really popular with these jerk-off fucking proud boy wannabe types. Like, it's in other words, the world has made this movie more relevant that it was when it came out is how I feel about the movie. Yeah, now. I mean, I mean, in, in twenty twenty, he would have been he wouldn't have been recruited by by skinheads. He would have been recruited by young Republicans and then fell into a Proud Boy group, right? I mean, it's it, I guess that might be a controversial thing to say, but I mean, it, it seems a little bit more realistic to the world we live in now compared. They to, wouldn't have it, even had to see him. He just yeah. could have been on four chan and this could have happened. Yeah, you know, what right, I mean? like, absolutely. Like you said, the the social media internet aspect has changed right. the game to a really wide extent. And I and I think the 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 what I was going to say too is it's not just that group, but then going back to Ice Cube's character, I think he unintentionally caricatures the black consciousness that Ice Cube is supposed to represent. Like right. a lot of the books on that shelf that of Ice Cube shelves are important books. 
but by making Ice Cube kind of just like a dickhead 22-year-old, it makes it so like that voice is silenced. And meanwhile, our professor character <coughs> is not referencing those folks. He's not giving respect to... So the, you're telling me the only person on campus... I mean, he's reading W. Uh, uh, Malik is reading W. V. Du Bois for class, right. but the Fishburne character is never referencing that black consciousness. And so, right. I think, I think in that way, it is a bit of a caricature of all of these ideologies because it seems like uh, Singleton is more interested in the drama of the idea, like all these kids on a campus moved by these big ideas and it boils over as sort of a, a microcosm, as you said, of our society. But, Watching it now, I think only one of these caricatures became the reality. In fact, in some ways, these dudes are slightly more respectable than your average Trump supporter. Yeah. So it, it it's kind of crazy. Like it's kind of weird to be like, you know, you could remake this movie on a campus, and you'd have to rewrite Ice Cube because a lot of the folks in his shoes would be a lot more intelligent and sensible and realistic. <laughs> but I, I do think the movie to tries to make it make it seem like Ice Cube's character was radicalized by Lawrence Fishburne's professor character, by being in his class, because they refer to the fact that he he was that, and they obviously have a relationship in this movie. But you're right, when you don't see Lawrence Fishburne's character vocalize a lot of the uh, the, the kind of, basically a more intelligent version of what Ice Cube is, is spouting off, then it, right. it kind of feels like that they, like one of them, they're just on Omar Epps' character's shoulder, like one's on one shoulder, one's on the other, and trying to influence him in different ways. Well, and, and, you know, I think what, in the end, Singleton, I think, really probably wants to do, at least this is my vibe, is combine these things. You are in a system that is rigged against you, and one of the solutions to that, besides systematic change, is is to work hard and not feel sorry for yourself. And it is true that the Malik character, when he first gets on campus, is a little, like, self-involved. And so yeah. all that makes sense, but to have the Fishburne character only vocalize that only vocalize will just work harder it doesn't work in the movie and it makes it feel a little weird and it really feels to me again that he's more interested in the drama of all this stuff right and not the politics and i think honestly because it, that's partly because in the 90s people felt like we were moving past all this shit that this was the last gasps of these issues that clinton was going to be the bulwark of a new liberal age and uh nope turns out that wasn't going to work out for everybody <laughs> so <clears throat> I, I i almost like watching it thought oh this was actually probably a good primer for someone like this this could be a good movie to start off a class on political filmmaking and say like hey this is one moment in a history of political filmmaking where it feels like it's time to move on that like we you know that that we're that we need to find a new way to be and they were wrong <laughs> that, that none of this stuff was resolved and it was only going to get worse it's i mean it is the most distressing part of it is that it should feel like more of a relic than it is in that you know it's the mess of a movie that it sometimes can be does not mean that necessarily the aspects of it that still resonate are dated at all if anything they're more applicable than ever yeah it's a kind of a depressing movie to watch because it does in some ways feel like so long ago while other times feeling as you said incredibly prescient about where we are now i mean there are bright spots like we didn't really hit on it too bad but um michael rapaport is such a muppet in this movie <laughs> he it's a great performance it really is he's really really good here which is an odd thing to say because I am not a Michael Rappaport fan as a person or as an actor. 
But I think that his casting here is particularly strong. Uh, even if when I look at his stupid Muppet face, all I can think of him is going, Hey, Ma! There's a weird fucking cat out here! Like, that's all I can think about. But I mean, for me, this is Michael Rappaport as a socially awkward future white supremacist is much more believable than his real-life persona of, I'm from the streets! I'm Michael Rappaport! I'm from I, the streets! I'm going to direct a Tribe Called Quest documentary. Hey, yo, I don't use the N-word, but if I did, it'd be okay, because I'm I mean, from the streets. Yeah, yeah, and well. you're just like, no, Michael Rappaport, you are not from the streets. Like, <laughs> stop it. Like, you are not. And, and and you know, the idea of him as this, like, backwoods dude who thinks Metallica is hard is, like, so much more. I'm like, yeah, this is the Michael Rappaport I need in my life. Uh, and what whatever. So I, I actually appreciate that. As much as I'm hitting on the way Ice Cube's character is written, Ice Cube as the angry guy on campus who's been there for six years i fucking love that like casting is great buster rhymes is his angry friend who just wants to fight (laughs) also great i i I don't have a problem with any of that and uh regina king lover i love that she is you know this is her second singleton movie that he's keeping her around like love all of that um really the only like tragedy for me uh when it comes to casting is christy swanson part of that is is the writing you know yeah i think a big part of if this is a movie that's supposed to prove that Singleton, this is like Singleton's uh, Summer of Sam, right? Like, yeah. uh, Spike Lee mm-hmm. made Summer of Sam to be like, hey, I know white people. Uh, this is supposed to be Singleton's I Know White People. And, uh, oh boy, uh, if Christy Swanson is evidence of, of, of what you know about white women, I hate to tell you, you don't know a lot, my man, because there's no character there. She doesn't exist. She's not present in the film. You know what I mean? And, and and that's a real bummer. And you could say the same thing, even though I like her. Uh, Jennifer Conley also doesn't exist other than to be uh, angry. Well, maybe not totally angry, but kind of angry lesbian woman. Yeah. You know, um, honestly, the only white people in the movie who really exist are the Nazis. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, yes, they're caricatures and they might be even offensive caricatures in how ridiculous they are. But uh, but at least they're there. They exist. I do have to say present. that I, I think that Cole Hauser does a really good job in his He's... portrayal of of a Nazi in this, simply because he is a lot more believable because of that insidious nature, because of the <laughs> idea that that, like you said, he's forward thinking. He's not just right. kind of a generic thug. He's very he's very menacing, and it's very good. Which was why I think because he's so menacing, the scene where he makes the case that you know is the real thing, like. As white supremacists, we need lawyers and judges more than we need to just shoot some people. Right. And then they all go, nah, fuck that. Yeah, yeah. Then he goes, okay, sounds good. Here's a gun. Go <laughs> yeah. shoot somebody. That part of the script doesn't make sense because you believe him when he says the other thing. But I guess you could make the argument he's given up on Remy at that point. That he's just like, well, Remy's headed for the grave either way. So I guess I might as well help him out. Uh, yeah, maybe. I don't know. But I, I will say like – that group and especially Cole Hauser, they're actually present in the film and are playing roles in a way that a lot of the other white characters I mean, uh, you know, vaguely country grunge friend. It, dude's not in the movie. He yeah. doesn't exist, you know? That dude sucks. He doesn't do anything. Yeah. He barely exists. Adam Goldberg, who's only in the movie twice, is more of a character than that weird grunge dude. <laughs> like all he does is Act awkward around a pool table and get threatened with a gun and and call Jewish. That Those part, are, that part th- where he comes back to his dorm room to find yeah. all of his shit destroyed because Michael Rappaport went, you know, 
wild and destroyed everything in the room. Well, actually, he didn't destroy everything in the room. Only this guy's stuff. Uh, it <laughs> at least it is a brief moment of humor before the, some of the darkest stuff in the entire movie. One hundred percent, and he's good. He's actually very good in that. Like, what the fuck is going on? Role. I mean, that basically is the Adam Goldberg role in every movie I've seen him. <laughs> right, it's Saving true. Private Ryan to Days of Confused to his part on Friends. I mean, that's that's what he does. It works, man. Yeah. It works in this movie. And again, <laughs> I remember him as that guy more than when 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 uh, when Omar Epps's roommate is introduced in the movie. I'm like, oh, this dude's in this movie, you know. Like, <laughs> and and he's very important to the plot. He's important to two of the characters in this film, and he doesn't exist. So I don't know. Anyways, I don't want to hammer on it too hard. One of the things we talked about a little bit here, Doug, is the idea that this is an attempt by Singleton to kind of. Uh, expand the scope of what he's known for from uh the two movies he did before and and Mm -hmm. obviously that's a clear decision to work with white characters uh and really um center their narratives as well as uh the narrative of the omar epps character um do you feel like this movie really distinguishes him in a significant way from his first two films i mean it is very different i do think that the fact that it is a movie that at its core is still about racial politics is very consistent with the kind of movies he's been making so far. And to expand it into bringing in more white characters, I think gives it a... It, I mean, I do think that it probably at the time gave it a wider appeal for those who maybe even... I mean, we know that their audience is even now that because it, it isn't solely black leads that they might have a little bit more interest in it. Maybe this is a movie that could play in Newfoundland, right? Instead of <laughs> instead of the ones that we've talked about so far from the early part of his career. Uh, the the difficulty with it is something that we've already mentioned, which is that the white characters in this movie are the least interesting characters to a great extent, unless they're the white supremacists, which are put directly at odds with the black characters, and of course, rightfully so. I do want, you know, when we come out of this movie, the character that you remember is Omar Epps' character. We haven't really talked about his performance, but I think he's yeah. really, really good in this. We really believably, you right. know, at the beginning, believably sort of a lunkhead who thinks he's all that, and then by the end, you know, really has gone through um, a transitionary period where he is more enlightened, that he sees the world as it really is, even if a lot of that comes from Lawrence Fishburne's character, which has some problematic aspects as well. So the fact that he obviously, that that Lawrence, sorry, that uh, John Singleton thinks of this character more like himself and cares more about it and ends on that character is something that is the real takeaway from this movie. So in some ways, looking back on it, I wish this was a movie just about Omar Epps' character, and they just forgot about the Christy Swanson stuff entirely, which isn't meant to undercut her experience and the way that they present rape in this movie it, and the way that that her journey goes through. It just seems a little half-baked compared to the Malik Williams character. I mean, I think that's what I feel as well. I also think, in that sense, the movie's a failure because I actually think calculating saying – well, if I include all these white characters, but we still deal with racial politics, I get to have my cake and eat it too. In that, I get to talk about things I care about, but I also prove that I'm not just making movies for black people, which like he almost explicitly says on Charlie Rose that like I want to show that I can do anything. Yeah. Well, you overestimated your audience. I, I really think that's part of it. I mean, not not you know that the movie's perfect or anything, but to assume that in making this movie, he's showing that he can make the kind of movies that white directors can make is not real because guess what white directors aren't making this movie they're not making a movie like this and if they are it's entirely different it's a very different movie and so i think if the goal was to distinguish him 
uh, from his past. I don't think this does that at all, really. I think it shows him working with other kinds of characters, but not in a strong way. And I think it, while we might look at it and say, oh, this is a very different kind of movie from his first two, um, I think a lot of people just saw it all as a piece, you know? And in fact, uh, while I, I personally feel like, and we're going to find out if I'm right about this, I personally feel like this is the beginning of the end, that from here, things start to turn in directions I don't necessarily love. Um, I think for a lot of people, that started with Shaft, that through Shaft, John Singleton is just John Singleton. And then it was after Shaft that suddenly he was making other kinds of stuff. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we'll, we'll see that play out, as you said. To me, looking back at this now, he should have been the perfect director for Shaft. And I'm not saying that he wasn't. I, I saw Shaft when it first came out, but I haven't seen it since then. But I mean, as a director with one foot in Hollywood filmmaking, one foot in conscientious filmmaking, someone who obviously you know is is very interested in the black experience in a predominantly white America and how that is supposed to play out, you know, in terms of remaking a movie about that exact same thing from the seventies, he seems like he should be the guy to do it. I have bad memories of shaft. I haven't rewatched it. So I'm, I'm excited to watch it uh, for this podcast and, and hopefully I'll, I'll turn a corner on it. But my feeling is, Really, Four Brothers is when he finally goes to do like an exploitation film. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. and and uh, I don't know. We'll we'll see when we get there. And honestly, I've seen Rosewood. It's been a long time. I don't remember it, and I've never seen. I think after uh, Shaft is brother. Ba- oh, it's baby, baby boy, baby, baby boy. boy. Never, I've never seen that. So maybe Baby Boy is great, actually. And it's our next film we're about to discuss that is the beginning of the end. I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? We're, we're going to see. We're going to see. Uh, but, but I will say, for me, this is the last movie that feels like a very John Singleton movie. And I get how, um, in some ways, he is doing something new. But I, I feel like he probably came out of this experience feeling still pigeonholed. And and at the time, this movie was, I think, pretty big. I don't know if it made a lot of money, but I remember people talking about it. It was still talked about like an art house movie. Mm. And I think this is the problem, right? Boys in the Hood isn't an art house movie. No. You know? Poetic Justice isn't an art house movie. I think people treated those things that way because but of... This is supposed to be mass entertainment. This is supposed to be for everybody. Yes. Yeah. But I think people talked about them in those terms and put them in those places, even with the massive amounts of money they made, they still thought of them as these specific sort of uh, 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 aesthetic movies because they were black and that was not mainstream mm. and because of who Spike Lee was. Because right. the reality is, whether you think Spike Lee made art movies or not, he was trying to make the most artistic Scorsese-style films. I mean – yeah. Spike Lee was trying to be an artist and John Singleton was trying to be uh, a black director. And I think that might be part of the pushback about this being compared to Spike Lee thing. Besides, it's just annoying to be like, hey, there's one other black yeah, guy. We no know, kidding. So you're right? like him. But it's not just that. It's also aesthetically. They're very different directors. And, you know, having watched what we've watched so far in this, I'm like. I'm so bummed out that anyone ever compared those two guys. Because other than the fact that they're both black, their movies don't really connect at all. They're you know, not it's, similar in any way. Before we hit our break, I just want to bring this up just to kind of bring it somewhat full circle with the Charlie Rose interview. In that interview, you see him light up when he talks about having an opportunity to meet some of his filmmaking heroes. And for him, they were people like Steven Spielberg and George Lucas, real Hollywood mass entertainment 
directors uh, compared to someone like Spike Lee, who obviously did idolize people like Scorsese and wanted to make movies like that. Um, And with that in mind, you would think then that John Singleton, where his sweet spot would be, would be putting together these kind of racialized ideas with mass entertainment. So, A, I think that that speaks to what you were saying, that he probably was disappointed in the response to a movie like Higher uh, Learning. But B, maybe he could excel on big, you know, bombastic Hollywood filmmaking. And we're going to talk about that right after this first break with Too Fast, Too Furious, Liam. I'm excited. All right, let's talk about it right after this. Time, it's time for the week to go home. Keep your eyes on the road, cowboy. Are you nervous? He did the stare and drive on you, didn't he? He got that from me. What's his deal? I got a problem with authority. You just need to chill out. You ready for this? Come on, man. Guns, murderers, and crooked cops. I was made for this, bro. Former cop Brian O'Connor is called upon to bust a dangerous criminal, and he recruits the help of a former childhood friend and street racer who has a chance to redeem himself. It's too fast. Two Furious from the year 2003, written by a cavalcade of people, Liam. Uh, Two people on the screenplay, three people on the story. The reason being is that uh, after the success of uh, The Fast and the Furious, of which this is part of the lengthy franchise, they had to make basically two scripts. One if Vin Diesel wanted to come back, and one if he didn't. Uh, and we uh, we live in the universe where both eventually happened. But this is a Paul Walker starring vehicle, directed, of course, by the great John Singleton. Uh, I, and this might be a pretty embarrassing thing to say, maybe not, uh, depending on your point of view, I had never watched any Fast and the Furious movies, Liam. My intention, of course, was to, uh, especially with uh, how big they've become over the last like six or seven years, was to eventually just watch the entire series. But this is one of those series where people overwhelmingly say that it starts weak and then gets strong or gets interesting as it moves along. I think you'll echo that to some extent as well. That said, I've always been somewhat interested in the series. It's just that these early movies hold very little appeal to me. A, because I'm not a car guy. I know nothing at all about cars, and it just seemed like it was meant to uh, appeal to people who are really interested in that. And also, many aspects of this movie feel extraordinarily dated. These movies are the most early 2000s movie. And when I say these movies, I'm speaking specifically of the first two Fast and the Furious movies, which I have now seen, because in order to watch this movie, I felt it was necessary to watch the first movie as well. This movie stars, of course, Paul Walker as Brian O'Connor, returning from the first movie. There's a couple of characters uh, recognizable from the first movie, though Vin Diesel and his family uh, do not return, I guess, until the fourth movie to some extent. And Tyrese Gibson is the uh, kind of co-star of the movie, as well as Eva Mendez. And Cole Hauser returns from Higher Learning in a very different kind of role as the uh, the villain of the piece. Liam, I want to start because you are 
uh, an aficionado of the Fast and the Furious series. Stop. You know it inside and out. Uh, you, I want to know if you like Hobbs or Shaw. I don't have a preference myself. I don't really know what these characters are. Uh, what do you think about the Fast and the Furious movies overall? And what do you think of this movie, Too Fast, Too Furious? Well, prior to our uh, Cinepunks episode about the series, which I would recommend people go and listen to, I had a blood oath against these movies. Um Yo, I really like fucking hated them because it's just like bro movies about cars like, you know, eat my entire ass. Like, I'm just not that's not for me. Uh, But that was having not seen them. And then finally, my co-host, Josh, who you only kind of know, uh, encouraged us to to cover it and really was like, you just got to watch them all and go through it and see what you think. And he wasn't wrong. I I think a lot of people. um well, he was a little wrong. I think a lot of people defend <laughs> this whole series, and most of the people I know who uh, engage with this series in a way that I think makes sense are doing it in a way that uh, is not really ironic, but it has ironic tinges. Uh, they mean to say, no, I really like these movies. But what they inevitably say is, I didn't start watching them until the later ones that are crazy. I went back and watched the old ones, and they were okay, and now I like the whole series. But when I tweet out, too Fast, Too Furious is a piece of shit. Almost no one comes to its defense. And yeah. the few people who do, even a little bit, it's partly because of their love for Paul Walker, which is a whole other issue that yeah. we can get into later. <laughs> so uh, my feeling on the movies is I'm willing to acknowledge the weird phenomena that a series hits its stride on the sixth movie. That doesn't happen, right? Movies don't get better on number six uh, very often. Uh, although some would say, you know, Friday the 13th Part 6 is very good. Uh, but for me, you know, I, I think three is pretty good. I think five is pretty good. But I think Fast and Furious 6 is an undeniably fun movie top to bottom, period. And that's a weird thing to admit considering the years I spent saying, all of these are terrible. They're stupid. All this sucks. Uh, now, granted, this film, I don't have to defend. It's bad. It has the worst tendencies of these films, which is all the misogyny and, and uh, you know, probably homophobia. I don't remember if there was a hard F in the movie, but... Uh, I don't I don't remember if there is. That That is interesting to hear, if only because this is an extremely gay movie in a lot of different ways. Um, oh, I, I will yet again reference uh, film critic Alonso Duralde, who regularly talks about how these movies are both homophobic and queer, and that's part of the appeal, yeah, is yeah. that every movie is about all these men who seem like they want to fuck, and then they constantly drop hard Fs or other weird gay panic jokes about right, it. Right, 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 right. Yeah, it, it's there's a real interesting mix on display here. The odd thing is, because I have not seen the rest of the series, I might be the only person on this planet who have only seen the first two movies in it's the series. Possible. Yeah, right? Because uh, anyone else would have moved on. Um, and, and that is kind of a weird barrier to this series, though obviously it hasn't stopped a wide audience from, uh, from really embracing it. I have to say... Uh, not that anyone cares about my feelings on the first Fast and the Furious movie. I was pretty entertained by it. I have to mostly because it is a very reliable formula on display. It's I, how come people don't just say it's Point Break except with cars because that's what it is, right? That's what the first movie is all. Be- because about. the later films are basically the Avengers, so it's like a weird comparison. Yeah, and, but I mean, and, honestly, like you say that, but 
Point Break is smart. Like, I don't think that first movie is smart at all. I don't no. think it has any insight. I think the car, like, it's so clearly a movie that um, has, you know, there's two things that the these, these, uh, this uh, series has figured out. It's about cars and it's about family. And Sorry, Liam, uh, I love how you say family. <laughs> I mean, that's the, uh, all the... All the family that I respect spell it F A M B L Y. So uh, it's about cars and it's about family, and uh, they didn't really figure out the family yet. You know what I mean? It's mostly just about cars in that first one. And while I get that cars are an important element, it just feels like they haven't figured their shit out yet in that first movie, uh, and that kind of bums me out a little bit uh and for me as a viewer it's just not something i care about like there's just no performance i care about i'm not charmed by paul walker i'm not charmed by vin diesel um i don't find the plot very very engaging so and i and i'm not just turned on my cars like there is a whole audience for this film that started off because they race cars. And that's like something I never thought about until I was listening to a whole series of, of podcasts about these movies. And uh, one of the dudes was like, yeah, I started watching these movies because I'm into car racing. And I was yeah, like, I figured, that's oh, what, the yeah, thing yeah, the movie's yeah. actually about. You care about that. Okay, <laughs> cool. Obviously, the movies became less interested in that. But every time someone pops a hood in these two movies and starts talking about what's inside, they might as well be making up the words that they're saying when I'm watching it. Cause I have no idea what any of it means. And maybe if you're like a big car guy, that is like a really interesting and engaging part of those movies. And I don't want to kind of, I don't want to like knock that because I like the idea that this movie is playing to those particular fetishes. I do think the idea of these kind of street racing tournaments is so ridiculous and cartoonish that I'm glad that it appears that this franchise embraced the cartoonish side of things. I do think that you're going a little hard on the first movie in terms of its focus on family. I do think I kind of like that aspect of it. And I know that they go heavy, heavy on that in the uh, in the future movies. But the weird thing about this movie that we're talking about is just how they abandoned that entirely. And was like, let's take the least interesting right. character from the first movie and focus all of our attention on him. Cause he's so great. And it's just like, who could possibly give a fuck about this guy who is by the end of the first movie, his story is played out. No one needs to know more about this fucking dude. Uh, so it's very odd that they decide to bring him back. Um, not very odd. I mean, I guess it makes sense. You're making a sequel to a successful movie and the other star doesn't have any interest in returning at this point. <laughs> the the Riddick money has not yet dried up. Um, and so they, they come up with this other story. I, I mean, we haven't really talked about this movie <laughs> and what we really think of it, just kind of in kind of wider uh, uh, aspects of the series as a whole. But this movie in particular, Liam, what are your thoughts on it? This would be my least favorite in the series if four didn't exist which is the worst thing ever um yeah i'm just not that it 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 is a movie that says look sure we don't have the family but we still have the cars and that's cool let's do the cars thing uh i i I like it because some of these people will end up being part of the family into the future and i appreciate that that incorporation um and there are things about it i don't mind the first time i saw it i thought i was just you know i've i had at the time seven movies to get through and I'm on number two, and it isn't, to my mind, an improvement over number one. It is, mm-hmm. in fact, a step down. And I'm thinking, I have five more movies of this bullshit. And so I think I shed on it really hard at the time because I was just like, this is so fucking tedious. I can't do it. On rewatch, 
it's not terrible. I mean, all of the CGI zooms through the car yeah. and between the different cars, mm-hmm. all of that is just painful. And it, it's really a reminder that that is not where Singleton's skills lie as a director. Uh, I know it was the style at the time, but it does not play well anymore. Um, and, but I do kind of like the heisty aspect of it, that they're going to pull one over on everybody. Yeah. Um, uh, and I like that it doesn't quite work out for them. Um, I like that... Uh, our our buddy from um from the Steve Buscemi podcast. Yeah, also, Mark Boone Jr. shows up here. Yeah, that he's in this. I think that's great. Uh and it's it's slightly more amusing. Um and, and, and the fact that uh uh Tyrese gets to have his big I'm an honest guy moment and then yeah. still steal money. Yeah. There there was something about that I kinda like because it was very much singleton like I'm going to conform to the to the morals that this series seems to have that in some sense, but I'm also going to uh, still put a little bit of criminality in here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, that's, that was a very have your cake and eat it too moment, and I kind of appreciate that, that it was like, eh, it's got to be both. You know, We're not going to steal all this money, but we got to steal some money. It's <laughs> a lot of money, you know? And, you know, that's I appreciate that. I, I, I kind of like that, you know? Uh, but overall... It, do, was I when it was over? Was I like, oh, I'm so glad I re- returned to that movie. Nah, man, it's just something about it isn't my vibe, and I, and and I kind of hate to say that because, on the level, a movie about uh, uh, crime and street racing sounds a lot more appealing than um, pretending that people who race cars are secret agent superheroes, <laughs> which is what the later movies are about. Um, I should like this one more, but for whatever reason, the audacity of six and seven just really works for me in a way that this movie does not at all. Uh, and it doesn't have enough crazy stunts. Like the, the fact that when he jumps the car into the boat, they're like, Oh my God, like this is the craziest thing yeah, I've ever right. done. And you're like, within a few years, you're jumping cars between buildings. What are you talking about? It's just so funny. I think this is the kind of movie that will seem worse in retrospect as you go through the series, which is obviously how you're approaching it. For me, I still found it perfectly serviceable as a movie, right? I mean, because I I don't have that kind of craziness in my mind when I'm watching that. I'm just kind of taking it as a continuation of the first movie. To me, as like you said, it's obviously a step down from a movie I didn't particularly love in the first place. So it didn't make me very enthused to continue the series. It's just the knowledge that things kind of take such a weird turn that kind of it will probably get me to watch the rest of these movies eventually. But uh, I do like the idea that they kind of try to start something completely new with this, which is that, well, now this series is going to be a buddy movie between Paul Walker's character and Tyrese Gibson. They're going to go on adventures, and that's what the rest of the series is going to be. Of course, that's not how it plays out uh, either. Uh, I do think Tyrese Gibson is is really good in this movie, surprisingly good. One of the things I do know about this series is that uh, he was particularly upset at the feud between Vin Diesel and Dwayne The Rock Johnson because... Uh, he obviously thought that his meal ticket was <laughs> potentially uh, in danger, but also because he must have felt kind of weird that he is one of the stars of this movie. He is a co-star of it with Paul Walker, and my understanding is that he t- kind of takes a backseat role once you got The Rock and Vin Diesel at the core of these movies. Would that be correct? Oh, he has beef with all of them now. Like, yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, just this feeling of like he doesn't get the respect he deserves. He's always crying about it. It's like a whole, I think there's a whole crying Tyrese meme. Uh, and I got to agree with you. It's a little weird because he is so good in this movie next to Paul Walker. 
Paul Walker is barely <laughs> present. And if it wasn't for Tyrese and uh, Ludacris, and you know some of the other characters too, but really those two are bringing all of the flavor to this movie, unfortunately. And Paul Walker is just sort of like walking around in his big shorts, pretending to be cool. It's he it, it really in this movie even more so. And I think um, I think maybe maybe this is the singleton of it, or maybe this was in a script. But this movie feels more like in a place. You know, the the, right. the mm-hmm. first movie for me, it's like. Uh, Part of why it's not believable is that it it feels detached from a community or a culture. You know, it just mm. they just sort of exist. This movie, it's like you believe that these people come from a place and they're in a place. Uh, and in that sense, like Paul Walker feels like a lost dad the whole movie. The fact that anyone trusts him, it doesn't merely go, "Hey, you're a cop, right?" I mean, especially since he is a cop or he was a cop. But his vibe, the whole movie, is like. He's just a like like a slightly more fun uncle. You know what I mean? He doesn't feel street in any way. And I don't just mean in the sense that the two most charismatic characters in this movie are black and here's this awkward white guy. But our other characters all feel uh, with a slight, you know, maybe Devin Aoki is a little out of place. I'm not sure. What she's she's very out of place, but that has yeah. less to do with her presentation in the movie. And well, yeah. I guess it has something to do with her presentation in the movie. But like Devin Aoki is the most early 2000s performer that could possibly exist. I mean, that's I, mean, I, I think the, the, here's the issue, though. Devin Aoki is to me in the movie in the most tokenized role. Absolutely. Not not just because she's Asian, but because part of street racing culture from the beginning has been a weird Japanese kawaii thing. Yes. That it's clear that the first director and now John Singleton don't know what the fuck to do with. And the fact that then they tried to move the city to Japan is because they're like, well, I guess we got to deal with this part of the story, you know? But I think she's only in this movie to be like, oh, also there's some Japanese shit. Like, that's it. And it's not her fault that that is so under It's not even baked. It's not even put together to bake. It's not even mixed properly to then bake. Yeah, because they they basically abandoned it after that first sequence anyway. And at that point, she's just the person who's with Ludacris, right? I mean, that's all her character is. She's there to kiss Paul Walker on the mouth. Oh, yeah. That's that's why she exists. Do you agree, by the way, that that the jump from Ja Rule to Ludacris is like that is the only improvement in this movie over the first movie? Sure. I mean, I think Ludacris, I mean, that's the thing. As much as I want to shit on this movie, this movie brought us both uh, Tyrese and Ludacris, who I think are additions mm-hmm. and uh, and I think are cool guys. And I'm glad that they're a part of the series. Uh, that's it. Everything else about this movie feels like a misstep. And, I, and I, I'm not even saying that because we're comparing it in some ways in my mind to other good Singleton movies. This just for this series of mostly shitty movies is almost the most out of line of what it needs to be. And it's only four that I find to be more bad. It's kind of strange that we will later, we have already watched in this series that he would later make four brothers, which is a much kind of, it kind of feels like what this movie should have been to a certain extent in that it's a little right. dirtier, it's a little grimier, it feels a little bit more like a 70s car movie, which at, at times this movie feels like it wants to be more than anything else, that it's trying to be like a bullet, that it's trying to be like a movie from that time period. But it's so wrapped up in those early 2000s aesthetics that it's really hard to get past that and the fact that it has been saddled 
with a really uncharismatic lead. I know it's probably, I know there are people who really like Paul Walker. You already referred to it, Liam. Even if he wasn't a real life scumbag, which he was, he just is really not good in this movie. He just is such a bland performer. He's a set of eyeballs and there's nothing else there at all. There's a part in this movie where, you know, he's being told that if he wants to have his um, his criminal record expunged, he needs to do this deal with the FBI. And they're going to pair him up with this FBI guy. And then he just, like, throws this string of car gibberish at the guy. And the guy has no idea what he was talking about. Just like I wouldn't have any idea what he's talking about. As a way to show that this FBI guy isn't right for the role. When he's doing that, he might as well be playing an android. I mean, that's how little (laughs) he's bringing to this role in terms of charisma. I don't get the Paul Walker thing, Liam. I know that you don't get it either. But I think that that is one of the biggest difficulties with this movie is that is that you have a kind of a void in the lead. Not just a void, but a void in a West Side Chopper shirt and big shorts. There's a caricatureness of it of like, this is what criminal white boys act like, and it doesn't work. It it would the movie would work better if Paul Walker was somehow this like street racing, slightly criminal mastermind, but everyone knew he was a fucking nerd. If they had written it like, yeah, Paul Walker's a nerd, but because he can drive fast, all these people respect him anyway, that would have made sense. But instead, he's like down. He grew up with Tyrese on the streets. Get the fuck out of here. Yeah, it's, it's impossible. It's just doesn't work at any point. And again, it doesn't have to for a movie that people are watching because they want to jerk off about cars, you know? And and in and of itself, it maybe doesn't matter, but it, it just stands out to me because again, I'm not a big Tyrese fan. I'm not even a big Ludacris fan in other roles. But in this movie, both those guys seem very well cast and they know what they're doing and who they're playing. And Paul Walker is like afloat in in the sea lost. That that reminds me of one of the weirdest parts of the first movie, which is for those. I mean, we're obviously not breaking down the plots. The suggestion is that you'd likely have seen these movies or are very familiar with them. But in the first movie, he's undercover. Right. And he's supposed to be trying to bust these. People stealing DVD players and televisions for some reason. Like, that's a huge deal. But, like, when they do the busts, even though he is still undercover, he dresses up and goes along with the busts, just puts on, like, a balaclava and just goes in there as if as if his eyeballs wouldn't give him away. Or maybe his voice would give him away. It's such a, uh, uh, for, forgive the pun, a ludicrous Uh, aspect of that first movie but we're talking about too fast too furious which is difficult to talk about because there just isn't that much to talk about cole hauser returns here uh an actor who at the time uh i thought in the 90s i thought he was going to be really big uh it's kind of vanished over the last decade or so he's playing an argentinian drug lord what do you think about uh, him in this movie liam i mean i very much appreciate that we did a cole hauser double feature but But I also feel like he's so much better as the skinhead. Yeah. In this movie, he is menacing, but he's being asked to play drug lord menacing, which is entirely different. Uh, I can feel him just like he wants to do an accent so bad, but he's not. He doesn't do really an accent in the movie. But you could tell that if they just said, you know what? Work on that Argentinian accent. Just give us like a something like that's. But instead, they just kind of have darkened his skin a little bit. It's kind of weird looking. I mean, I'm all fine with if he's playing an Argentinian, he could be as white as the day. Of course, is long he could, but they don't. They do absolutely no. Tan him they up. really try to like it, to the extent too that he even has in Carter a very white first name. Yeah. So if he's Carter Verone, 
um, then let him not have curly hair and wear weird Miami suits. You know what I mean? Like, there's just an aspect of dress up here that doesn't work for the character, and it certainly doesn't work for Cole Hauser. If you wanted that vibe, then just cast someone else. Just cast a brown dude. But, like, he just looks silly. And the whole vibe is, like, not as menacing as he could be. Uh, and and honestly, it's the whole thing is a little uncomfortable because his role is to play a little light and loose with the menace of domestic violence. Yeah, absolutely. Now, that actually does play a little bit into uh, w- the other thing I wanted to talk about, which is I was kind of dismayed by how women are presented in this movie. I mean, in the first movie <laughs> as well, to a certain extent. But, you know, one of the things that we have already talked about on this series is how in Poetic Justice, that was a movie that that centered in a in a very big way the female experience, that it tries to uh, look at, uh, to a certain extent, actually, uh, abusive relationships, the way that, uh, that, that women are centered in black relationships to a certain extent. But in this movie, women are not just sidelined. I mean, Ava Mendez is supposed to be this, uh, someone working with the FBI as well, and she's a secondary character, and she's, she's fine in that role. But part of it is that she they don't know if she has uh, flipped, like Paul Walker flipped in the first movie. They don't know if she's being like horrifically abused. It seems like she is to a certain extent. And every other woman in this movie is literally set dressing and embarrassing set dressing. What's up with how women are presented in this movie, Leah? I think this is one of the aspects of the of the series, right? And uh, it's actually a real bummer because the Eva Mendez character um, – you know, I, I'm not an expert in the series. I think she comes back. Oh, does she? Okay. I think she comes back in the rest of the series and in one of these films is killed off in the most disrespectful way. And I remember because I, I and I don't remember the movie right now. And so apologies to our listeners who are big fans of the series. But I remember listening to the podcast that was talking about it and then being like, what a what a bullshit way to treat that character. You know what I mean? But I think that's an aspect of these films where sometimes they have strong female characters and sometimes they don't. And it really is a movie to movie thing about how the women are going to be presented and how they're going to be treated. And even when the female characters are written a little bit stronger, it's hard for them to take up any space because these movies are about these dudes dicks from movie one to movie done. We, the cocks are in the room. And so, like, even if you do have women, part of the way they have to be the strong female characters is just to kick ass. But also, I mean, also, I think it's 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 the no homo aspect of these movies, right? Oh, 100%. I mean, in the first movie, you have, you know, Vin Diesel has to have a love interest because we have to be able to, you know, like that. That's a a movie that is much more about male relationships than this one is to a very great extent, to the point where I can see how people would come away with it. It's like. Those guys love each other, right? And that's I think that's a very fair interpretation of the first movie. But in this one, it's very much like we can't have anyone talking about that these characters are potentially gay. We need to put Ava Mendez in here as well. Though you, you still, you come out at the end of this movie and it's like, these guys love each other, right? I mean, they, they covered these, like I said, on uh, Who Shot You? They did a whole series. One of the ways they evaluated the films was this question of no homo, but in both directions, right? How homophobic is this film? How queer is this film? And 
Those things do not exclude each other. Absolutely. Oftentimes, the most awful gay panic comments are in the movies where you most think these dudes are going to fuck. And it's not even just, it's not even just the character interaction. In some of them, it's how they're filmed, where you're like, I- I'm supposed to want to fuck him right like what is happening you know and uh, this is the this is the thing right and i think this is where the uh in a real way it feels like later on into the series that the the characters have taken over the movie in this movie i think it's just an average early 2000s movie for boys you know that's what this is it it is just hitting the notes this is what we think dudes want so this is what we're going to do it's really interesting that we talked in our discussion on higher learning, we talked a lot about John Singleton, but we're not really talking about John Singleton now that we're talking about Too Fast, Too Furious. We're talking about the, the series, and we're talking about the the kind of weird aspects that are, are uh, unique to the series. Why aren't we talking about John Singleton when it comes to Too Fast, Too Furious? If you push me to say what feels like John Singleton here, the only parts that I would reach for, and they might not be him, they might just be in the script, is A, the ludicrous, you know, the the Tej Parker character mm-hmm. and uh, Tyrese's character, uh, whose name I forget. But, um, <laughs> you know, the fact that the two of the most interesting, humorous, really worthwhile characters are black men, you know, like that. Maybe that was Singleton's choice. Maybe it wasn't. But it, it feels like him. Uh, the fact that you can't trust most of the cops. <laughs> that part that part feels kind of like him like maybe that was uh you know his push a little bit certainly the portrayal that the one endearing cop is again a black man um and the idea that like uh you know the fact that these dudes are kind of on the edge of the law doesn't matter what matters is like their moral integrity that 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 maybe is him maybe it's the script i don't know but that's the reality right everything that i could reach for that might be reminding me of singleton could not be him. It might not be him at all because there's nothing in this film that like screams to me of his first three movies or even his later movies. You know, like if 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 I hadn't seen those other movies and you told me uh, this is the guy who made Four Brothers, I'd be like, oh, really? You know what I'm saying? Like, I think there's more to connect with in Four Brothers than there is in this movie. I mean, I it's an easier. I have an easier time believing that this is the director who made Four Brothers than I do having the knowing that this is the director who made boys in the hood. It just feels like right. we're already a universe away from that, those kind of movies. And the fact is from this point on, he's never going to look back. He's never going to after too fast, too furious. This was um, his second movie after Rosewood that he didn't write himself. And he was to never write another one of his feature films again after this point. Uh, and that, I mean, maybe you could make a, a case, I guess that some of the, the, more confused aspects of higher learning fall directly on him as the writer. But one of the things that makes boys in the hood and poetic justice and higher learning so interesting is that his voice is in them. And that's something that I feel like is sorely missed unless, as you said, unless you dig a little bit in too fast and too furious, you, uh, you don't really see it. So uh, it's, it's kind of funny to say, I, I enjoyed both higher learning and too fast, too furious. But they're both movies that are flawed in really unique and different ways. But Higher Learning is a, so much more of an interesting movie than Too Fast, Too Furious. There's so much more to chew on. There's so much more to talk about. Too Fast, Too Furious is just an average Hollywood movie. And that's not the kind of movies that I ever thought that John Singleton would be making. If I was not committed 
by my friendship with Josh to watch the whole series, I would not have made it past this movie. This would have been the end for me. Rewatching it, I don't. I'm not saying that because it's the worst movie ever. We've both seen things that make this look like fucking you know Orson <laughs> Welles. But the reality is like it's just not that interesting. It's fine. It's kind of entertaining, but there's not a lot there to hold on to. And my hope for Singleton as a director at the time would have been, even if he makes bigger budget, less personal films, they'll at least be interesting. I think there's hints of that in Four Brothers. I think we had mixed feelings about Four Brothers. Uh, but it's certainly not for me here in this movie. It uh, it really does kind of look forward to abduction, which at that point, there's no John Singleton left in that movie, uh, which, again, I don't want to be a downer on it. And I'm not trying to knock the guy for what obviously, you know, he was still making very successful movies and went on to do a lot of television work, which maybe was more satisfying than than film at that point. Maybe that was something that he could uh, put some of that more personal aspects into uh, compared to the movies he was making in, you know, even up to 2011. That said, we're still, you know, the format of the show allows us to kind of put the play these things against one another. And we're going to do that again, Liam, on the next episode of the films of John Singleton, where we're, we are going to be talking about 1997's Rosewood and 2001's Baby Boy. These are two films, Liam, that I have not seen before. I mean, this is why we're doing the series is so I, I can become more familiar with them. I have to say that compared to all of the movies that we've talked about so far on this show, these are the biggest question marks for me. I know almost nothing about Rosewood, and I know basically nothing about Baby Boy outside of the fact that I saw it on video shelves all the time in the early 2000s. I swear I've seen Rosewood, but I cannot remember what it's about. Like, I really cannot. Uh, and Baby Boy, I know for a fact I did not see that. In fact, I don't think I, even when it came out, would have seen that cover and thought, oh, that looks like something I want to watch. I mean, you know? that's it, right? And I've, I feel a little embarrassed to even say that out loud. But, like, looking at that cover, all that poster, or all I'm like is like, well, ah, this doesn't look like something that's for me. Well, we're going to see if it's for us or not, Liam, on the next episode of the film's Oh, John Singleton. Liam, how are you feeling? I feel pretty good, actually. Um, I'm excited that we're doing this because I think we're getting to some interesting stuff. And it's like neat to revisit these things, even something like Too Fast, Too Furious. I feel like we are getting a handle on this on this person and his career, but it 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 I'm you mentioned at the beginning of the show, I am glad that we're taking this format of it because you're one hundred percent right. It would have been distressing to watch Boys in the Hood, Poetic Justice, Higher Learning, uh, potentially Rosewood, watch those in order, and then eventually get to Too Fast, Too Furious, Four Brothers, Abduction at the end of this series and be like, we lost John Singleton. Where, where did he go in these movies that we've been watching? This way, I think we get kind of the best of both worlds. Uh, and again, I don't want to knock mainstream Hollywood entertainment like Too Fast, Too Furious. I had a good time with it. Um, but uh, as you have referred to, maybe not the highlight of the entire series. Well, I'm just excited to keep going. You know, that's that's I I'm I am because I I'm kind of hoping that um those are outliers that maybe Rosewood and Baby Boy are very good and we're going to f- discover that. Maybe not. I don't know. We'll see. Well, we'll check that out soon. Liam, if people want to check out more episodes of uh this podcast and others, uh where should they go? Well, you can get the latest episodes of Cinema Smorgasbord if you head over to cinepunks.com, C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X, as well as a family of podcasts from uh, Evil Eye Podcast to... 
Tomb of Ideas to one of my podcasts, Horror Business. There's a bunch of stuff going on over there. And we, as always, have new stuff coming out in the future. So keep an eye on cinepunks.com for all kinds of movie needs. If you just want to dig into the archives of this show, uh, you can head over to cinemasmorgasbord.com. You can also find us on social media. We're on Twitter at cinemasmorg, S-M-O-R-G. And you can, of course, follow Liam on Twitter at Liam Rules. That's R-U-L-Z. But I also recommend that you follow me on Twitter. That's Doug underscore Tilly, T-I-L-L-E-Y. Both of those are linked on the Cinema Smorgasbord website as well. Why don't you leave us a review on iTunes or elsewhere? It always helps the show. We appreciate it very, very much. But with that said, Liam O'Donnell and our lovely listeners, we need to take another break. Uh, not a break. We actually need to stop this episode. Maybe I should uh, figure out what I'm going to say before I say it. Liam, we need to end off our discussion of John Singleton today. We're going to be back very soon with two more John Singleton classics. Good night, everybody. Yo. I want to get With my backpack belling to orientation So I can change the nation See many faces but none of them mirror me Show my ID to the punk ass security Step on the quad Looking for the track squad Walk by a bitch who thinks she's God Passing me a flyer Talking about the messiah She wanna take me high Keep your rhetoric 